0: So I can't think of anything worse than being born blind. Imagine never being able to see. And maybe one of the worst parts about being blind is that people don't treat you like everyone else, but they treat you as people with a condition. And so they'll either be constantly doing things for you or they're ignoring you altogether. In our gospel reading today, we meet a blind man considered a nuisance by those around him. And yet he's going to be an important part of the entourage that will be joining Jesus to Jerusalem. So today I just want to invite you to turn to Matthew, to to Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, as we look at this uh, little passage together. We're also going to be looking at Isaiah 59. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, just kind of put your thumb in there. But we're going to be looking at both of these passages today. So in Mark 10, remember Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Um, this is the climax of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And once he gets to Jerusalem there, he'll be crucified. Um, there he will testify before the Sanhedrin. And in verse 46, Jesus... And his disciples has arrived in Jericho. Now Jericho is the very last town before they reach uh, Jerusalem and and the environment thereof. Now Jericho is located just a few miles from the Dead Sea. It's actually located, actually it's below sea level. And in order to get to Jerusalem, which is a a day's journey, um, they actually have to to climb more than 3,000 feet. So it's not just an easy walk, but it's a walk walk that's going to require a lot of them. But they're in Jericho right now. And during their journey, we remember that Jesus has been talking about the contrast between the kingdom of God and the way things work in the kingdom and the way things work in the world, that they're very, very different. They had met during their journey someone that seemed a, a potential recruit, a guy that, you know, that the disciples just said, well, this seems like a great guy to join us. He was he was attractive, he was wealthy. All kinds of things. You remember, this is the rich young ruler. And, uh, but to the, uh, to the disciples consternation. He was not welcomed into Jesus entourage. And now as Jesus and his disciples are moving along. They come to a place where they meet a beggar. Uh, a guy who spends all of his day just pleading people for help. He's completely dependent on the kindness of people to, to eke out an existence. He's been blind all of his life, this man. He's a man that undoubtedly was not able to make a living for himself. And he probably faced a lot of abuse and loneliness because of his condition. But when this beggar heard that Jesus of Nazareth was about to pass by, he had to cry out. He he knew that Jesus was his only hope. And so he cried out because here's an opportunity of his life. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth in the scriptures. Do you know why he's called Jesus of Nazareth? Because Jesus was actually a really common name in first century Palestine. There was a lot of Jesuses. So one of the ways to easily identify Jesus was to name him from the village that he was from. And Nazareth was a small village probably was not another Jesus in Nazareth. So here's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is there. And although this beggar was blind, he could see things that others around him were not able to see. This beggar, this blind beggar, had insight into spiritual things that enabled him to see. And so he knew who stood before him. He knew... That Jesus was the Christ. You know, when we refer to him as, as the son of David, this would have easily been meant to the, to the Jews at the time. Oh, this is the Messiah. The Messiah. Messiah and Christ, by the way, are the same names. One's in Hebrew and one's in Greek. Um, so, so they would have clearly said, oh, the Messiah. And so remember that the, the disciples clearly knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But remember what happened in Mark chapter 8 when Peter confessed that he was the Messiah, Jesus told him, keep quiet. Don't let anybody know. And so up to this point, it's been hushed. It's been quiet. They didn't refer to Jesus as the Messiah, certainly not publicly. And now here's this blind man who comes out of nowhere and he proclaims, here is the son of David. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where he's called the son of David. So what has been... What has up to this point been kept a secret is now publicly proclaimed just before reaching Jerusalem, the place where he'll be crucified. Here is the Messiah. Here is the Messiah that will come, the long-awaited Messiah. The blind man at the roadside was no doubt familiar to the people of Jericho. And as he tried to, to get Jesus' attention, the crowd attempts to silence him. They attempt to silence him. But even as they do, the beggar just cries out even louder. They're even embarrassed by his antics. And they just, they just do everything they can. They rebuke him. They say, shut up. Keep quiet. You have no right to speak. You have no right to get access to this man. You're not good enough. You're a blind beggar. But that doesn't stop him. Even as the crowd rebukes, even as as he's put down, nothing. This man is desperate. And he says, no, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man needed a savior. He was desperate for a savior. So 500 years before the coming of Jesus, Israeli society was in a disastrous position. In Isaiah 59, we find a description of the condition of things. In verse 9, we learn that it was a land with no justice, a land where righteousness was, was far away. In verse 14, we hear that that truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. So the public square or the gate of the city was the place where where people would come from throughout Jerusalem in order to bring their issues, in order to bring their disputes, hoping to find justice, hoping to find somebody that would, that would hear their case and judge in their favor. And so the public squares would have been equivalent to our courtrooms, the place where justice is dispensed. But in verse 16, it says, the Lord saw it and it dis- displeased him that there was no justice. You know, when we think of justice in our society, we think of, well, this is a place you know, where, where facts are established. So if you're accused of something, the facts are established, and then sentences are rendered based on the facts. So, okay, now we make a judgment, and now here's a sentence based on the facts that were presented, and we, we present them in a you know in a as convincing way as we possibly can. But in Hebrew, justice means to set righteousness right and to declare the guilty party guilty. So what's the difference? It's the same, isn't it? When I uh, when I was in high school, we did this mock trial, and in the in this mock trial, so I was actually the attorney that had to defend uh, a guy that was accused of a crime, and as I delved into the, the facts of the case, it became really apparent that this guy was probably guilty. So what I did, I I, I saw my role is just to well, let me just sow seeds of confusion, sow seeds of doubt so that in the, end, all, th- in the end all they had to do was determine that there was reasonable doubt and I'd get this guy off. Well, anyway, the, 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 it proceeded and in the end the jury came back with a judgment that this guy was not guilty. And then afterward the, the guy got up and he announced to the class that he was guilty. Was justice done? No. A guilty person was let off. See, our justice system often gets distorted because the rich receive good representation while the poor are often left with an overworked public defender who has no time to investigate the details of the case. But biblical justice ensures justice for all, not just for those that can afford it. The proper functioning of public life depends on justice, righteousness, and truth for accountability. But all that had been deteriorated in this community described in Isaiah 59. Have you ever been to a country where the government just fails to function? (laughs) <laughs> this one <laughs> believe me it's not this one believe me cuz i've really been to i've really been in a place where where things don't really function so so when i arrived in the democratic republic of congo for my two and a half year stint as a peace corps volunteer i walked into an airport where in order to get my luggage i had to pay a bribe wow. <laughs> and then I, here i'm riding my bike you know, just, it, just in the city or, you know, a little village. Where I was, and I would get stopped by a member of the army who would ask me for money. And if I didn't give it to him, well, by the way, he had a machine gun on the back of his, of his back. <laughs> and I just had a little backpack. What was I supposed to do? Or if I wanted my mail, I've got to pay this little fee, which is a bribe. And so in this society, the poor get poor. The rich get richer. And this is what happens when when government, when, when the society breaks down. What is so horrific about the breakdown of Israeli society was that it was supposed to be a light to the other nations. You know, of all the other nations of the earth, they had a relationship with the one true God. And that relationship would propel them to act differently than other nations. The Lord had given them the Torah, the instruction, the law. They were supposed to guide their relations with one another and with God. And so they were supposed to show other nations how they were supposed to live. But they, but they didn't. And in the end, their society broke down to such an extent, it actually became worse than the nations that surrounded them. They didn't know the true God. And as a result, Isaiah in this passage compares the broken state of Israel to the blind who grope for a wall. The people hope for salvation, but there is none to be found. Societies aren't supposed to break down, but they do. You know, imagine what it would be like to be in a country, never to be treated fairly, never to be able to trust others never to be able to see righteousness. But that's the way it is in some places. And similarly, people aren't supposed to be born blind, but they are. Imagine what it would be like never to see color, never to see a sunset, never to see the face of another human being. What part of your life is broken down? What part of your life do you want? for something more in whatever every of your life do you long for rescue in isaiah 59 the lord searches the world for a person who can save his suffering people his eyes are just moving who is that person who can do it but there's none to be found there's no human being that can be found and so the lord is determined That he himself, he is the only one that can save his people Israel. Only he can do it. And so he accepted the role of shepherd. Because all the other regents and rulers for God had failed. The Lord takes the part of a warrior who's come to establish the proper rule of justice. In verse 17, the The poetry portrays the Lord being dressed and armed for the mission of victory. He puts on a breastplate, a helmet, garments of war, a mantle, the full uniform of a warrior. And two pieces of armor may stand out for us. A breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Ephesians 6, that's right. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17. where where Paul literally lifts language. This is where Paul gets his idea. It comes from this passage in Isaiah 59. He lifts this language to describe the full armor of God that we, the disciples, are to put on. But here it's the Lord. It's the Lord himself putting on this armor. So what is biblical righteousness and salvation described here? You know, so righteousness refers to those qualities and actions consistent with what? is true order of reality. What is moral order? What is supposed to be the right order of things? And so when the Lord comes with righteousness, he does the right thing on behalf of his people because he wants to restore righteousness in the society. And salvation is the provision, uh, urgent, timely help. It's it's the help that's needed in time of, of danger or bondage. That's what salvation is. Now the outcome of the Lord's invasion is sure to bring righteousness and salvation. The Lord will powerfully defeat all those organized and mobilized against the right ordering of the world. He will act as the redeemer for Zion. What's Zion, by the way? What does it mean? Jerusalem, good, excellent. Now, 500 years after this prophecy, God incarnate comes. God incarnate Jesus Christ. He arrives in Jericho and hears the cry of this blind man along the road. And the blind man serves as a symbol for all that is wrong in Israel and shouldn't be. If it were up to the crowd the blind man would never have access to this fountain of salvation that was right before him. That's what happens when human beings control things. You know, they're they blind to their, their own need and, so, and they literally keep those that, that want truth and want righteousness and salvation from them. But the Son of God came to bring righteousness and salvation. And upon hearing this, Beggar crying out. Jesus stops in his tracks and he looks at him and says, What do you want from me? And the blind man says, I want to see. And so Jesus says, go. Because your faith has healed you. Jesus made right what was wrong. He brought salvation to a man in need. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 59. That God himself would come to save his people. You know, this is the last healing event in the gospel of Mark. And it's the only one where a person is named. Why? Why do we know Bartimaeus' name? but we don't know the name of others because because Bartimaeus joins Jesus after this. He's not only healed, but he joins all of the followers of Jesus to become his disciple. Here is a man who's been saved by Jesus, and now he's determined that he wants to follow. And so the believers remember him because they were one of them, even as this book of Mark was being written. You may feel like that salvation has eluded you. You're not alone. But this passage is meant to give us hope that God has not forgotten you. You know, back in the 1850s, there was a woman who every night prayed for her son. And her son was not a good man. But she prayed for him every night, trusting that the Lord would come. Her son's name was Orville Gardner. He was a professional boxer. In 1853, the New York Times called him Mr. Awful Gardner because he bit off the nose and ears of an opponent in a boxing match. The name Awful Gardner actually became very fit for him because he was just infamous for his gambling and drinking. And and he was always in the paper, usually for some barroom brawl or something like that. And 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 after a while he began to catch up with him and he was he was charged with assault and had to flee to Canada. Well soon after he arrived in Canada his his son who he deeply loved died of a of a, of a drowning accident. And Gardner walked out one night and he just was looking at the stars and he was thinking about his son just wondering where his son was. And 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 as he and as he did uh, he was thinking if he would you know one day be able to see him and he heard a voice say to him if you don't change your life you will never see your son and at that point he just he ran to his mom because he knew his mom was praying for him he ran to his mom and he just came to her and and she prayed for him and she shared the gospel with him and he changed his life he gave his life to Jesus And not only was he a transformed man after that, but he actually became uh, a preacher of the gospel. And he preached the gospel. I mean, his life was transformed. God never forgot this faithful woman who for decades prayed for her son who had gone so astray. And he has not forgotten you. He knows the things that are not right in your life. He alone is the mighty warrior who has come to bring righteousness and save his people through his only son, Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to have hope today. (coughs) Sorry, that was loud. I invite you to have hope today. Um, If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never really opened your heart to Jesus and invited him in to be your savior. I just invite you to do that right now. Jesus came to save us. Jesus came because every other human being failed. And so God himself came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. I invite you to invite him in. Or if there's some area of your life that just is just incredibly broken, incredibly something just isn't right, either with you or a member of your family, pray for God's salvation and righteousness. This is why the Lord has come, to save his people.